Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. Well, we are welcoming back a consumer hero and a privacy hero who's been on our show before. And we're so thrilled that Edwin Merzwinski from the U.S. Perg Consumer, who is a consumer program director for them, is joining us tonight. Let me explain a little bit about his background because you'll be extremely impressed. Ed Merzwinski is the Consumer Program Director with the National Association of State Public Interest Research Groups, and the shorthand is U.S. PERG. Since 1989, he has been in this directorship, and U.S. PERG and State PERGs are nonprofit, nonpartisan, consumer, environmental, and good government watchdog groups. Ed has testified many times before Congress and the state legislatures, and he has authored and co-authored numerous reports on consumer issues, ranging from the failures of cable television deregulation to privacy, identity theft, bank issues, predatory lending, and unfair practices. He's often quoted in the national press and has appeared on network news shows such as NBC Today, CNN, ABC, and many more. He has been profiled in the New York Times, and he's a 2003 recipient of Privacy International's Brandeis Award for Privacy Protection Efforts. You can learn much more about him at usperg.org or perg.org, and also you can learn more at www.kuci.org slash privacypiracy. Ed, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thank you, Mari. And I would be uh, in trouble with my uh, people if I didn't also say, in California, go to calperg.org, calperg.org. Calperg.org is very, very important as well. And by the way, we're sitting here on the campus of the University of California in Irvine, and we happen to have a a PERG office 
right here on the campus. So those of you who are students, after you listen to Ed and get all excited about how you might be able to volunteer and be part of this wonderful organization, you can actually go to the PERG office right on the campus. So that's another little bit of a promotion for you because you do such great work, Ed. Great, thanks. So tell us about the goals of PERG. Well, uh, the state PERGs were founded in the early 1970s as college student-based organizations. The idea was originally that students would hire their own staff who would help them uh, with internships and publishing reports, taking them off campus to help solve real-world problems either in the cities or in the states where they were based. And we quickly realized that, that was a great model, but that we wanted to be even more effective. So we started knocking on doors. Uh, the president, uh, President Obama, uh, is a community organizer uh, from way back, and knocking on doors is what community organizers do. So we also canvass in neighborhoods. That's what it's called, canvassing. And we now have members in about 35 states, state perks. And we also have environmental organizations that are affiliated with our network in California. It's called Environment California. Uh, but, but we, so we have student members and other citizens around the country. And our goal is to take on powerful interests on behalf of our members. Uh, we teach people how to fight City Hall. Uh, we teach people how to make a difference. And we make a difference on behalf of people who really have jobs, have families, and don't have time uh, to do the work that we do on their behalf. So it's been a very successful model, and we've got about 400 staff around the country. By the way, if you are in school at Irvine or any other school that can hear the show, if it's podcast or streamed, we are always looking for people right out of school to come on to our staff. Uh, we have a special website, jobsthatmatter.org. Wonderful. And they can learn a lot more about U.S. Perg and the state Pergs at usperg.org. And I think it's calperg.org as well for California, right? I'm pretty sure that's Calperg.org is uh, absolutely where you can find out more about Calperg. Right. Well, we have listeners all over the country, so please go to usperg.org, and then from there you can find out about your state Pergs. But let's get started. So you started talking about the fact that our new president makes use of canvassing. What about... What's going on with our new president, this new administration, and how how receptive are they to consumer issues? And kind of tell us what's going on. Well, uh, recently uh, we worked uh, with the president on passing the credit card bill of rights law. And even more recently, uh, we have been working with the president and his economic team on solving the economic collapse that was caused by a lack of consumer protection uh, in the mortgage industry, and the, the 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 crazy thing here is that the banks and the bank regulators orchestrated a collapse of the entire world economy, and now President Obama's got to clean up the mess, and uh, we are working with them. We're very excited about a proposal that the president has made recently to enact a new consumer financial protection agency. And the idea is modeled on the old, not old, old, but the, uh, the existing Consumer Product Safety Commission, CPSC. Uh, and, and as the president said on Jay Leno, when he was out in California just a few months ago, as a matter of fact, 
he said, uh, we have an agency to protect us if our toaster explodes. We don't have an agency to protect us if our mortgage explodes. And we're looking to this agency to have sweeping authority so that if you have a credit card, if you have a bank account, if you have an overdraft fee, if you, uh, I hope you don't, but if you have a payday loan, uh, no matter what kind of credit product or deposit account product you have, this agency will regulate it. Because the problem we've had for years is that banks can pick their own regulator. There's too many bank regulators. It's an alphabet soup here in Washington. The Federal Reserve FRB, the FDIC, the FTC. Those are some of the better ones, by the way. Then there's the OCC and the OTS. And a bank picks its regulator depending on whether it likes it, not depending on uh, whether the regulator says we're going to enforce the law. So the new agency will protect us all no matter where our bank is based or no matter where our loan is from, a car finance company, uh, a payday loan store, or whatever place. So we're excited about uh, trying to clean up this mess. I look at this new financial consumer agency as the biggest change in Washington since deposit insurance in terms of protecting consumers. Right. Well, the Federal Trade Commission doesn't regulate banks, but it regulates the credit bureaus. So they've been overloaded with trying to do consumer protection and and deal with companies that did, you know, deceptive practices. So when you're talking about this new agency, where is the funding going to come from? I mean, even the Federal Trade Commission doesn't have enough resources to deal with all of the consumer complaints and problems that they have. I'm just worried about where is the money going to come from to even set this up? Well, that's exactly right, Mari. It's a big problem. And actually, one of the problems we've had with the bank regulators uh, is that they have too much money and it's not accountable. Not every agency, this may be something that is not taught in most uh, uh, classes on political science, but not every agency is funded by taxes. Some agencies are funded by fees. Uh-huh. If an agency is funded by fees, it's less likely that the agency has adequate oversight from the Congress. And the bank regulators, as many public utilities are in the states, uh, bank regulators are funded by fees or dues assessments paid by the banks themselves directly to the regulators. And the bank regulators are supposed to ensure the safety of the banking system and to ensure that the banks comply with the consumer laws. And so we plan to take some of the money that the bank regulators get because they've not been doing a good enough job and they're getting too much of it uh, and they're not enforcing the consumer laws and giving it to the new regulator. Well, that's great because I know I have had so many of my own clients and even I have complained to the controller of the currency for many of these issues and you get nowhere. And everyone says that the controller of the currency is, quote, in bed with all the banks. And it makes sense to me if if they're getting the money, the fees are from the banks, you know, like you said, there there doesn't seem to be any oversight to make sure that consumer protection laws are really um enforced by the banks. That's exactly right. And the Federal Trade Commission is a little uh, agency with a very, very big job. 
it does get some fees whenever a corporation wants to merge with another corporation. They have to pay a review fee, uh, and that covers their uh, so-called competition bureau. But their consumer bureau is entirely funded by congressional appropriations. And 30 years ago, the Federal Trade Commission did a massive study of the insurance industry. And what happened? The insurance companies went running to Congress, took away their authority to enforce the law against insurance companies, and took away a bunch of their money. So often, powerful special interests retaliate and take away congressional funding, which is even harder uh, to deal with because it's so difficult to get congressional funding today because there's so much competition. We've got to fund children's health care. We've got to fund growing infrastructure problems, collapsing bridges, and these kinds of things. We've got to bail out the Wall Street banks because the regulators blew it. So there's a lot of competition for scarce appropriations based on tax dollars. So that's why we're hopeful that we can, and so is the president hopeful, that we can convince Congress that this agency ought to be funded with fees from the regulated interests. It makes a lot of sense to me. I guess my next question would be, in terms of people who are victims of financial identity theft, would they then, um, you know, there's certain things that they go to the Federal Trade Commission for, and they then make complaints to the Federal Trade Commission, but um, are there many things that the Federal Trade Commission really has to coordinate with the bank regulators to try and get them to do something? Because I know I personally spoke with Joanna Crane from the Federal Trade Commission and talked to her about some concerns I had for victims, such as not being able to get documents of the fraud, even though they're allowed to under certain uh, provisions of the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And she said, well, the only way that we could really take any action would be to get the controller of the currency to take this on themselves. So how how would that work with victims of identity theft? Would they be working uh, congruently with the Federal Trade Commission? Or what, what is your vision? Well, Mara, you've raised a very important point, and maybe I should step back and just talk a little bit about the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which we are both uh, experts on, and we'll try not to bore your listeners with the numbers and the details and the page numbers. But The Fair Credit Reporting Act is our oldest privacy law. It was passed in 1970. And despite all the problems we have with credit bureaus making mistakes that they refuse to fix or banks making mistakes that they then send that mistaken information to the credit bureau, the Fair Credit Reporting Act is a stronger privacy law than many others because it's based on something called the Fair Information Practices, uh, which are a set of rules that give consumers the right to look at their file, to dispute their file, to demand that their file be fixed, and to sue the company if their file isn't fixed. And very importantly, in most cases, uh, they can recover fees to pay their attorney as well, because it's very expensive to bring a lawsuit against a company that treats you wrong. But if the attorney can be assured of being paid by the bad guy, you're more likely to be able to get representation. And that helps consumers 
become part of the enforcement mechanism to make the law accountable. But the law is quite complex. You have the credit bureaus. Those are the companies that collect and sell information about consumers. And they have a responsibility to keep that information secure from fraudulent uses or wrongful uses. They also have a responsibility to keep it accurate. They get their information from creditors. Right. Creditors are called in the law furnishers, but most furnishers of information are, in fact, banks, credit card companies. Um, in growing uh, over the last several years, uh, growing numbers also including utility companies and cell phone companies. And then, of course, we must also say that other companies that furnish information are the debt collectors. And the debt collectors are good at making mistakes. That's about the best thing I'll say about them. They're good <laughs> at making mistakes. The uh, credit bureaus also acquire information from public records, another easy source of mistakes. They go down to the courthouses or they contract with companies to go down to the courthouses and tax clerk's offices on their own and copy information about the uh, public records, whether you've filed for bankruptcy, whether you've sued or sued somebody, or whether you've been sued by a hospital or a bank or a car dealer for not paying your debts. And the problem, of course, is that they copy this information with scanners or with, in some cases, by hand. Uh, one famous case, uh, the credit bureau's person copied the list of everybody who paid their taxes in Vermont instead of the list of everybody who did not pay their taxes. And that helped us to pass the 1996 amendments to improve the law. So the law is quite complicated. The first problem with the credit reporting law is that we had um, massive mergers of the industry that occurred throughout the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. As computers became more prevalent, local credit bureaus became regional credit bureaus. Now we just have the big three credit bureaus, Experian, TransUnion, and Equifax, in addition to a number of specialized credit bureaus, Medical Information Bureau, and in California there are many tenant screening bureaus uh, that, that try to keep people who have filed, illegally I might add, try to keep people who have filed housing code complaints uh, out, of, uh, out of apartment complexes. But they're all credit bureaus under the law. And so when they all merged and created new, bigger national databases, they made a lot of mistakes. And those mistakes are hard to clean up. But we strengthened the law in 1996 to try to make it easier to clean it up. But one of the problems that you alluded to, Mari, is that you contact the credit bureau, and the credit bureau says, well, the bank said that that information was okay. Well, we tried to fix that in the law. But holding the banks accountable is a huge problem. That's why we're excited about the new agency, because we believe that at a minimum, the new agency is going to take over all responsibilities for holding banks, creditors, and debt collectors accountable under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And perhaps after it goes through Congress, we might also take the entire credit bureau regulation uh, and put it in the new agency as well. Uh, the OCC, the agency you talked about, 
uh, is the enemy of the consumer. Right, uh, they the are controller the of the bank. currency, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you try to deal with the controller of the currency, you might as well be banging your head against a wall. I should point out that any bank with either national in its name or NA for national association in small print at the end of its name is regulated by the controller of the currency. Bank of America is a national bank. Citibank is a national bank. Wells Fargo is a national bank. The um, the other Chase. kinds of banks that you have are savings and loans right. and um, sometimes called savings banks. And then you have banks with state in their name. Chase is recently a national bank in the right. last five years. They had actually been the last big state bank until they merged with a couple of other banks and decided that coming under the soft touch of the controller of the currency was something that would help them to uh, charge higher and more unfair fees uh, to their customers. Right. Uh, and Chase has been uh, pilloried before the Congress over the last several years and uh, for their practices. What's really been disturbing about uh, the whole battle over credit cards and unfair bank practices is it's not just banks you've never heard of that do the unfair things. It's these big banks that I've named. Exactly. And, and I see it from the perspective of victims of identity theft who really kind of poo-poo uh, some of the regulations in the Fair Credit Reporting Act because, you know, they're not really worried about the Federal Trade Commission because the Federal Trade Commission has no authority over them, and they're not really worried about the controller of the currency. So the, the problems with some of the issues that we have with the Fair Credit Reporting Act is that it, the provisions that are supposed to help people aren't even enforceable. That's exactly right. And the, uh, the controller just doesn't listen. Uh, he, he has a bunch of people that answer the phone and don't do anything for people. And that is why we need a new consumer financial agency to hold national banks accountable uh, so that they comply with the consumer protection laws, including the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Because particularly, Mari, in the current economy, it is, a, um, uh, it is just a real problem for consumers to have a bad credit report. If you've got mistakes on your credit report, it's harder, to get, it's harder enough to get credit in a bad economy. But if you've got mistakes on your credit report, it's even harder. And it's harder enough to get jobs. Yes. in a bad economy. But if you've got mistakes on your credit report and employers are allowed to look at them, uh, believe it or not, uh, then it's even harder to get a job. That's unfair. Yes. And, and I have a gentleman client right now who was laid off from a job and he has identity theft and he can't get it off. And he's, he's having trouble with all of the banks dealing with him. And, uh, and, and, and it is, it's affecting his ability to get a job because they look at those credit reports. Right, and when I talked earlier about mistakes on credit reports and how they occurred as the credit bureaus grew into national companies and they adapted and acquired various databases that were not compatible with each other and made all these mistakes, well, the credit bureaus simply presume that if somebody tells them something, it must be true. And so if they get information about Joe Smith well, then it's also about Joseph Smith. It's also about Joseph A. Smith. It also could be about Josephine Smith, or believe it or not, about Jerry Smith. 
And even worse mix-ups of names occur uh, because the credit bureaus believe that anything a bank tells them or a debt collector tells them must be true. And that's how the crime of identity theft grew, as you know. Uh, An identity thief doesn't steal your credit report. It's very hard for you or me to get our credit report from a credit bureau. We have to jump through a lot of hoops. We have to say our full first name, our full middle name, our full last name, our previous name if we changed it because we got married or divorced or uh, were prince um, or somebody else like that to change their name. Our social security. And we have to say where we lived, everywhere we lived in the last five years, and, of course, our social security number. Right. A data thief doesn't need to know all that about us. He or she goes down to the cell phone store, applies for credit in our name, The creditor gets our credit report instantly because the creditor must be a good guy. (laughs) And they're the customer, right? They're the customer. The consumer is a necessary evil to the credit bureau. Although that's not particularly true anymore. Now the consumer is a cash cow because with the advent of the Internet, with um, with the invention of email, the credit card companies have figured out how to market a lot of deceptive products to consumers such as freecreditreport.com, that are very expensive and overpriced and cost the credit bureau nothing to market uh, because they can send it all by email. Uh, And and not only that, the credit bureaus really facilitate identity theft, and yet they market the fact that identity theft is so bad so that they can get you to buy their credit monitoring systems. Well, that's exactly right, Mari. I mean, I I call it a protection racket myself. And Mm. with a protection racket, the organized crime promises not to burn down your store if you make the payment every month. But with the protection racket of identity theft credit monitoring that the credit bureaus sell, they don't promise that they're going to keep your credit report accurate or that they're going to prevent identity theft, or if they do promise it, it's simply not true uh, because you still could be a victim of identity theft even if you pay for their service. Right. And it's outrageous that they take advantage of the bad economy and of identity theft epidemics to sell their protection racket services. And, of course, one of the things I mentioned earlier was that the president recently signed a credit card law, and in the very last negotiations of the credit card law, the uh, Senator Levin of Michigan added a provision that gives the Federal Trade Commission new authority over FreeCreditReport.com and companies like FreeCreditReport.com. Of course, that's the company that has the really uh, atrocious uh, TV commercials that have been pilloried on YouTube of kids singing in a bar or a restaurant because they can't get a real job because their credit report is bad because of identity theft. Right. Now, didn't the Federal Trade Commission actually find FreeCreditReport.com, but they never really told them that they had to take those commercials or change their name? Isn't that correct? That's exactly correct. Under the Bush administration, uh, FreeCreditReport.com, which is owned by Experian, the big credit bureau, paid two fines, one for $950,000 and one for $250,000 for essentially recidivism, continuing to violate the law. But that was all five years ago and four years ago. And the, the, the contract, uh, I'm sorry, not the contract, but the settlement order that the FTC signed with the company wasn't strong enough, 
and they continue to aggressively sell this product. And Not it's only a dece- that, and it's deceptive. The due date, uh, if you don't cancel within nine days, according to some versions of it that I've seen, uh, you automatically are subscribing to the so-called free product and having your credit card billed. And it and it's such a deceptive thing because people are aware that they're allowed to get their free credit report from the three credit bureaus, but they are actually allowed to get it at annualcreditreport.com, not freecreditreport.com. And it is really deceptive that people think that, oh, that's the one that I can get free. And then even though they were fined, Experian was fined, people are still confused about it. My clients are confused about it. Oh, yeah, I'll go to freecreditreport.com. Well, sure, as soon as they go there, they signed up for some service instead of annualcreditreport.com. So is that going to change? Are you well, saying that that's going to change, Ed? I, I, I hope so. And the, the current Federal Trade Commission felt that its hands were tied by a very weak settlement order that had been negotiated by the Bush FTC that essentially allowed the bad conduct to continue. When you sign a settlement order with a government agency, you're supposed to stop doing the bad things. But the Experian not only continued to do them, it ramped them up. They're spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year, according to news stories that I've read, on advertising the product. So you could imagine how much money they're making on the product and yet they only paid the chump change of five years ago, uh, $1.2 million total in penalties. They're making much, much more than that. That's go-away money. They essentially paid the government go-away money to continue to conduct the unfair practices uh, that deceive consumers. And as you pointed out, in 2003, Congress copied seven states that already gave consumers the right to a free credit report on request. And when Congress passed that law in 2003, the industry fought very hard to call it annual credit report so it wouldn't be confused with their deceptively marketed free, quote-unquote, credit report. And now the FTC is going to gain the authority it needs Uh, to bust open that weak settlement order that they've been tied up with. That's terrific. Well, we are talking with one of the greatest consumer advocates that we know in this country, and he is also one of the best privacy advocates. We're speaking with Ed Merzwinski, who is the U.S. PERG Consumer Program Director, and PERG stands for Public Interest Research Group, and they do so much wonderful work for trying to help us as consumers, which every one of us is a consumer. You know, I want to switch gears a little bit, Ed, because you have so much you can tell us, but how is it that PERG actually became involved in privacy, and and how does that fit in with the mission? Well, it's an interesting uh, story, but it relates to credit. And when I came to Washington, I was hired, I'd been with PERG all my career. I had been in the Connecticut office, and I'd worked both as an environmental lobbyist and as a consumer lobbyist, uh, and I worked on the first new car lemon law in Connecticut, which passed about two months before the California lemon law, but both states passed those. And in 1989, I came to Washington, and I was uh, 
first tasked with cleaning up the savings and loan bailout and then working on improving the rights of banking consumers. Well, if you're a banking consumer, you're in the market for loans. If you're in the market for loans or deposit accounts, uh, you need a credit report. And if you don't have a good credit report, you pay too much for your loan. If you don't have a good credit report, uh, if you've bounced checks in the past, for example, and you're listed in a specialized credit bureau known as Check Systems, it's hard to, it's hard to open a new bank account. So as a consumer advocate, getting a bank account, getting a credit card relies on a good credit report. And it turns out that the Fair Credit Reporting Act is a privacy law, and it turns out that accuracy and security of credit reporting information, the privacy uh, of your confidential information, makes a difference when you're trying to get a bank account. So that's how we got involved in it to start. And uh, then as the Internet became an important part of the economy, we became involved in major campaigns to hold companies on the Internet accountable. And the banks um, got into a tremendous amount of information sharing uh, as they grew and as they merged. And so it all sort of came together uh, because privacy is something your bank didn't want you to have. Accuracy, uh, which is another part of privacy protection, is something that the credit bureaus didn't want you to have. So if I wanted to improve the banking system, if I wanted to protect the integrity of consumers' financial lives, I had to protect their privacy, too, or PERG had to protect their privacy as well. So that's how we got involved with it. And uh, all throughout the, um, the nightmare, the epidemic of identity theft then occurred, which was again related to the digitalization of the electronic conduits that began to run across the country and network uh, between our information in our virtual and our real lives. And so protecting privacy became an ever more important part of every consumer advocate's job. Right. And, and for our audience, they should know when you were talking about privacy principles, we're talking about privacy in the information age and the ability to have some control over the information that's bought and sold and shared about us, whether we're talking about privacy of our financial information or privacy of our medical information, that's all the ability to have some control over who gets to see it or in who gets to buy it or sell it or share it or whatever. So I just wanted to clarify that. You know, um, Ed, when you were just talking a few minutes ago, ago about the, uh, the credit reports, I wanted to ask you another question that drives me crazy and see if something can be done about this. Most consumers don't even realize that lenders and creditors who get to see their credit reports actually see a very different credit report than the one that they see from annualcreditreport.com. Why don't you explain why that happens? That's a very good question, Mari. And again, it is critical in this economy that you have a good credit report because it's harder to get credit. Banks are cutting back on mortgages. They're tightening down the screws on existing credit card customers, making it harder to get new cards, and the credit report is your financial resume, and the credit score is kind of the uh, SAT number version 
of your long financial resume. And it is important uh, for many, many reasons that this be accurate. And as we looked at reforming the credit reporting system, we had several issues out there. And the first issue that we had is that consumers had to pay to look at their credit reports most of the time. So the second issue we had was in the times where they had the right to a free credit report, they weren't told about it. Uh, so the first thing we got in 1996 was the right to be told that you have the right to a free credit report when you're denied credit. But the creditor sends you a notice that you've been denied credit or we're going to charge you more for credit uh, because you have a bad credit report, but they don't send you your credit report. And we have been fighting for many years since 1996 uh, to get them to send you the credit report that they looked at. But what happens is we were unable to win that yet. We did in 2003, after seven states acted first, gain the right to at least get your credit report for free on request in addition to after you've been denied or if you're unemployed or if you're um, uh, a person um, who, who has who no is, money, has yeah. no, you know, yeah. is indigent, right. I guess is the term that's in the act. So. Right. Anyone, anyone who qualified under those definitions used to be able to get a free credit report. But, but, the, but the problem is that a, there are two problems out there. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm giving a long explanation. The first problem is, again, you were denied credit and you simply received a notice that you were denied. And then you decided, well, do I want to bother contacting the credit bureau and asking them for a copy of my credit report to see why I was denied? So the first problem is you're getting a report on a different day than the creditor got the report. They might have denied you in May. You're applying for the report in June. It might be changing. So that's one part of the problem. The second part of the problem is what I explained earlier when I was talking about identity theft. When you apply for a copy of your credit report, you have to provide a lot of information about who you are and that narrows the amount of information that's going to be in the credit report. Think of the credit bureau computer as a big ocean full of little boats full of information. And uh, the, um, the, the credit report that you request has got to be only including the boats that exactly match all of the information that you provided. That's your if you're full the name, consumer. your social security number, your previous address, your current address. If all those things don't match, they don't send you the information. But if a creditor asks for my credit report, say my name was John Smith rather than Ed Winsky, but if a creditor asks for my credit report, the credit bureau gives them all the boats that have, I'm using a bad ocean metaphor with <laughs> boats here, but I'm stuck with it. Uh, the credit bureau gives the creditor all the possible John Smith boats in their database. So it is much more likely that negative information that has nothing to do with you is going to be given to the creditor to review to decide whether or not to give you credit. So the creditor, whether he or she gets a full report or a score, it's much more likely that there are mistakes. And then a month later, you order your report it's much more likely that it's this pure, pristine as the driven snow credit report that has no mis 
no negative information in it about other people that you don't know or never heard of. And that's the problem. And we want consumers, when they're denied credit, to get the exact report that the creditor used. Why can't the creditor say, here's the credit report we looked at, and that's why we're denying you? Exactly. And this is what I've been saying, because what happens is for so many people who are victims of identity theft or just victims of what they call a merged file, like you were talking about, maybe five John Smith stuff appears on your report. When you get your own report, you have no idea what they've seen, so you can't even dispute it. And right. and so if if you could get an exact copy, which... I usually ask for that, and and actually the Fair Credit Reporting Act says that you cannot be denied a copy of it if you've been denied credit, but most creditors don't want to give it to you, and some creditors even tell my clients, if we give it to you, then we're going to lose our account with the credit bureaus. They don't want us to give it to you. That should be illegal, and there there have been provisions like that in the credit reporting contracts that have limited consumer rights that have been eliminated by FTC action. And since Congress has given consumers the right to look at their reports from a creditor, a subscriber file, if you will, then Congress should also prohibit the credit bureaus from penalizing a subscriber who does that. Right. Now, I understand that if you've been denied a mortgage, that that the newer provisions in 2003 do actually say that the mortgage lender should give you a copy of the report that they received because you might lose that whole loan if you have to wait for two months to get your credit report. But I I suggest that everyone who has a problem with your credit report and, and they won't give you, the creditor or the lender won't give you a copy, demand it in writing. I had a recent case of a woman who was co-signing with her son uh, to buy a car. He was just 17 years old. And they told him that his credit report had a lot of things on there that um, were looked very strange with his social security number. And they wouldn't give him a copy of the report. Finally, I wrote a letter. They gave him a copy. And we found out that some Hispanic woman um, in another state, was using his social security number for the last eight years. So unless you get to see that commercial report that they're showing and, and to uh, to lenders, you won't even know what you can dispute or how to clean up your life. That's why we're excited about the new agency, Mari. I mean, the Federal Trade Commission just doesn't have enough power, uh, and the new agency, we believe, will have much more power and it will get around the bank regulators who are in bed with the banks and prevent consumers from going after a bank that makes a mistake. We're excited about these changes, but privacy uh, is still going to be at risk in this country. There are just so many people that want to take away your privacy. And by the way, when I talked about the fair information practices, I talked primarily about the ones that relate to the Fair Credit Reporting Act, but another one that's important that deals with banks and the, the way that banks share information is that it's fundamental belief of all privacy advocates that information that is collected for one purpose should not be used for a different purpose, a secondary purpose, without the consumer's express opt-in consent. 
And that is a right that we have very, very sparingly uh, in the United States. And companies want the right to have a terms of use on their website that allows them to do whatever they want. And companies want the right to share your information with all their affiliates, regardless of your consent. And Fundamentally, we need to change the dynamic in this country so that privacy is not an afterthought. Exactly. Like in the European Union, they do have what you're calling opt-in, that companies can't use the information for a secondary purpose or an alternative purpose without the consent of, of actually the person about whom they uh, have that information. So That's exactly right. How, how do you... Because we've got in on this opt-out, which is everywhere, even the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act is opt-out, how do you think that we're going to be able to change that? Are there any bills in Congress right now to change from opt-out to opt-in? Well, I think that as part of financial re-regulation, the bigger Obama plan is to re-regulate the financial system and part of that will be to look at the 1999 Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act that essentially allowed companies to share all your information with any of their affiliates regardless of your consent and to share it with third parties on an opt-out basis. And by the way, California, under the leadership of former state Senator Jackie Speer, who's now a leading congresswoman, yes. uh, did pass a law known as SB1 several years ago that was attacked by the controller of the currency and attacked by the bank agencies and associations. However, the California Supreme Court and then the appellate courts have have upheld that California actually has stronger privacy rights, and the Supreme Court is going to hear that case uh, if the banks have their way. The banks have asked, and the controller of the currency has supported their effort to overturn a Ninth Circuit decision that gives Californians greater rights against the information sharing uh, than the rest of the country has. So and let, we're let's explain. The court won't yeah, take that case. let's let's kind of explain that to the audience right now. Under the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, you could opt out of having your information sold to third-party non-affiliates when you're working with your financial uh, companies that you do business with, but you could not opt out of having your financial information shared with affiliates. So a good example of that is when I, uh, before California's law was was considered, uh, in, in, you know, effective, when I refinanced my house and I had already opt, opted out of everything, um, when I saw in escrow that my information was being shared with about 10 pages of companies that were affiliates. I had no right to opt out. Under SB1, the California residents could opt out of having their information shared not only with non-affiliates, but with companies that have 20 million affiliates. So that that's what he's talking about, and I'm hoping that we can extend that to the entire country. Right, and we're hoping the court um, will reject the case, uh, because if it takes it, that usually indicates that they're thinking of overturning the lower court, and uh, we'll have to see what happens there. But 
banks uh, want to share your information, want to sell your information. They want to use it to create profiles about you. They want to be able to predict that they could sell you overpriced products or deny you other products, all based on uh, their use of information that really should belong to and really should be controlled by you. And right now, California residents are the only ones who have any control over information sharing between and among affiliated companies. Yep. We're speaking tonight with one of my very favorite privacy and consumer advocates. He's in Washington, D.C. Ed Merzwinski is the U.S. PERG Consumer Program Director. And as you can hear, he's very articulate. He's brilliant. He speaks before Congress. He works with the president. He works with state PERGs. And we're just so thrilled to have you on, Ed. Ed, let's talk a little bit. I know you were very involved in the credit card holder's Bill of Rights. Why don't you tell us what we've gained from that? Well, the credit card holder's Bill of Rights, after 20 years in Washington, in the first 10 years, we had two hearings on credit card companies, and we didn't even have any votes on credit card companies until two years ago. So for the first 18 years I was here, we had two hearings and no votes at all. In the last couple of years, we had a few more hearings. But the reason is that's how powerful the credit card industry is. But they got so greedy. It's always been extremely profitable to be a credit card company, but they got so greedy, and the controller of the currency let them continue to get more greedy. First, they said, well, what if a consumer is less than 30 days late? Can we charge them a late fee? And the controller said, sure. Then they said, well, what if they're just one minute late? Can we charge them a late fee? And the controller said, sure. What if their bill is due on a Sunday and we don't get it till Monday? Can we charge them a late fee? Sure. What if they've always been a good customer and they did this one bad thing? They were one day late. Can we raise their interest rate in addition to charging them a late fee? Not just a few percent for the first warning, but can we triple it to 36%? Controller said, yes, you can. And then it got even worse, Mari. Then they said, what if Ed has paid his credit card bill to us on time every month? What if he had his credit score decline, whether it was identity theft or because he paid somebody else late? Can we raise his interest rate and charge him a late fee, even if he paid us on time? And the controller said yes. And that made a lot of other Americans angry. And then the straw that broke the camel's back is the credit card companies started saying, what about people that haven't done anything wrong? They paid everybody on time, including us. Can we invoke the clause 399 of our 36-page contract, which says we can change the rates and the rules for any reason, including no reason? And can we raise the rates of perfect customers. And that caused thousands of Americans to write to Congress and the Federal Reserve. They were simply outraged. And again, they said, Ed, you were only late once or you were never late. We're raising your rate not from 12 to 15 percent, but from 12 to 36 percent. That's more than the Sopranos charge. (laughs) 
And we're doing it because the economy is bad. No, actually, they were doing it while the economy was booming first. Oh, oh okay. And uh, then they said, oh, good, the economy is bad. Now we have an excuse. Exactly. <laughs> That's what happened. And so everybody was outraged over the credit card companies. And there are a number of other things that they were doing. But really, the worst one was first hair trigger late fees claiming your bill was due on a Sunday, and if it paid it on a Monday, it was late, shortening your due date. Uh, how many people have had a bill that was typically due on the 27th or the 28th, depending on how long the month was? For years and years, your bill is due on either the 27th or the 28th. Then on the 21st, you open your bill and you find out that, oh, my bank decided it's due on the 20th. Right. Suddenly. And that was the other thing that they did. And then, of course, how can I forget uh, double-cycle interest and trailing interest and residual interest. I won't bore your listeners, but those are all methods of charging people interest on money that they paid last month. Right. <laughs> and so the banks had all these tricks, all these traps that were designed not to go after risky customers, not to go after deadbeats, but to trick good customers into becoming bad customers. And because of that, we were able to pass a very strong credit card holder's bill of rights into law that takes effect uh, at the beginning of next year that is also protects college students from unfair credit card practices. You can find out more about marketing to college students at our special PERG website, truthaboutcredit.org, and also gives the FTC the authority to go after freecreditreport.com. Uh, so these are all important protections. Unfortunately, we don't have any protection against raising interest rates. The, uh, the law basically applies to the tricky increases where you can't do that anymore, but it doesn't limit or reestablish usury ceilings. That's something we hope to get in the future, reestablish a ceiling on interest, which we always had until 1978 when they started to repeal them around the country after a Supreme Court case. And second, we want to get rid of the clause that requires you to go to mandatory forced arbitration if you have a dispute with a credit card company. Nobody's against arbitration. We're against mandatory forced arbitration where you don't have a choice. And let's talk about the difference between arbitration and having the right to go to trial because arbitration, you're hiring an arbitrator. And unfortunately, people are human, and if they're going to be hired by Citibank or Bank of America or Chase, and they rule against those companies, maybe they won't be hired again. And that's a reality. Whereas when you go to court, you have a judge, and you don't really have the right to decide whether you want to use that judge or not. Yeah, you can do a preemptive uh change on if there's some good reason, but you can't just keep changing until you find the judge you want. It's not that easy, but you can do that with arbitration. So what are you doing about mandatory arbitration? Well, the president's proposal for the new financial consumer product agency recommends giving it the authority to ban mandatory arbitration in consumer contracts. It's not just in your credit card contract. It's also in your insurance contract, your right. insurance contracts, your HMO contract, rent-a-car contract, pretty much any one-sided contract that you have to sign to take advantage of some service. So that's the first problem. And you, you identified part of it, Mari, what's called the repeat player problem. 
Right. The arbiter wants to be rehired by the bank or the hospital, so the arbiter doesn't want to rule against the bank or the hospital, or they won't get rehired. But there are many other problems, and let me just give you one example. Oh, yeah, you I mean, have no right there, to appeal. Secrecy yeah. and your no right of appeal and all these other problems. There's, California has the only law that allows for disclosure of arbitration results. And as a, uh, uh, because of that law, several groups, including public citizens, citizen.org, have done studies, and they found that one of the biggest users of arbitration was MBNA Credit Card Bank, which is now part of Bank of America. But MBNA was going after identity theft victims who never had accounts with them and forcing them into arbitration over accounts that they did not have and never had. And it was just uh, Kafka-esque and continues to be Kafka-esque that the Office of the Controller of the Currency let MBNA go after people who never had accounts with them and force them into the kangaroo court that is known as arbitration. But anyway, that um, we have a, a coalition that's working on arbitration as well. And by the way, I should point out that uh, there is a, a coalition on the uh, bank reform that many groups are joining and that we're inviting the public to join. And it's OurFinancialSecurity.org is our new coalition website. Is that the Americans for Financial Reform? That's the, other, that's the name of the coalition, Americans for Financial Reform, the website, OurFinancialSecurity.org. Well, I, we only have about a minute left. And I, we, I tell you, I have to have you back on very soon because there's so many more questions that I had for you. But do you have any hope now with the new administration? I mean, it sounds like there is some some chance for hope for consumers. I think we're very hopeful. President Obama was a community organizer. He understands the plight of the American people, and we're very excited about the opportunities here. The banks made a mess. That gives us an opportunity to talk about the mess that they made and to come up with new solutions. I hope, by the way, when I come on again to get to what I didn't get to today, which is to talk about Internet privacy and the migration of the Internet to mobile telephony and the whole issue of uh, locational tracking and our proposals to the Federal Trade Commission to protect consumers from behavioral tracking and targeting on the Internet. But that's something for the next show. Well, we'll have to have you on real soon then to just to talk about that there's so much going on in privacy thank you so much ed we really appreciate ed merzwinski who is the head of the united states public interest research group the consumer program director and we will send them to usperg.org thank you ed for joining us thank you mari always a pleasure okay see you soon you've Great. been listening to kuci 88.9 fm in irvine and kuci.org on the net I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. See our upcoming guests, download podcasts, listen to archived interviews, and write us emails about what's important to you about privacy in the information age. Thank you and good night. Stay private. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.